All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open together to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, we're continuing our study in Israel's uh, historic hymn book. Last week we were in Psalm 84, talking about the temple, and that was a uh, pilgrim praise, a, a psalm of praise, a song of gladness uh, before God. And this morning, Psalm 42 is a different type of psalm, and compared to last week, it's going to feel very different. If last week was a psalm of praise and joy, this week is a psalm of lament, a psalm of, of sorrow. And I like what one writer says, and I'm going to say this at the front end, and, and, and keep this in the back of your mind as, as we go through this psalm, but what he says is that every true lament, whether it be, you know, our own personal expression of, of sorrow or lament in the Scriptures, every true lament um, is a love song. If done right, if done correctly, every true lament is in essence a love song. So let's see how that's, that's true for us this morning. Uh, Psalm 42, uh, we're going to read the entire text. Uh, let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's called Alive Inside, and for most of you, I sent this in an update email uh, yesterday, I wanted you to have this documentary in your inbox, and I've already heard from some of you, <laughs> some of you already watched it and, and given me your, uh, your reaction to it. Your reaction was the same as mine. Um, again, it's, it's a documentary you can find on Amazon. It's called Alive Inside, and it's a documentary, again, about a, a social worker. His name is Dan Cohen. And what he does is he works in nursing homes that deal primarily with patients who suffer from dementia. 
and from Alzheimer's. And he made an incredible discovery. And here's what it is. Um, music can awaken memories. Music can awaken memories. Here's an example. Uh, Henry, he's one, of the, um, he's one of the characters in this documentary. Henry has been in this nursing home for six years. Uh, Henry doesn't speak often. Henry doesn't get out of his chair. Henry is heavily medicated and sedated. Um, borderline vegetative state. And so what Dan, this social worker, did was he took an iPod and a set of earphones, and he found out that Dan, or excuse me, Dan found out that Henry liked jazz music. So he made a playlist and walked into the nursing home one day and just put the earphones on and hit the play button. It wasn't days, it wasn't weeks, it was minutes. Henry started moving. He didn't just open his eyes, but his eyes were wide open. He began to dance, and then he began to sing. He began to get animated. He began to move. You could just kind of see life coming back in, uh, coming back into Henry. And so after several songs, they took, on the ear, took off the earphones and said, you know, can we ask you a couple questions? Again, this is a man who's probably said a handful of words over the last six years. And they said, did you like the music? He's like, absolutely. I said, who's your, who's your favorite jazz performer? And he thought for a moment and said, Cab Calloway. I said, what's your favorite song? He said, he didn't say what his song was, he just started singing it, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Now, now again, what's so amazing about the story is, is this man was entirely unanimated, borderline vegetative state. A couple songs in, he's an entirely different person. Alive in a way that he hasn't been and they haven't seen before. Music is, it's an interesting thing if you study it. Uh, music is one of those things like food, like water. It's universal. You, know, you talk about water with people. Everybody has a category for water because everybody needs it. You talk about food with everybody. You, you can talk about it because we all have a need for it. It's just one of those universal principles. Music is one of those universal gifts that God has made and God has created. Every culture has some form of music uh, of their own. They've even created their own instruments. They have their own songs, right? Try to find a culture that hasn't done that. Um, it's universal. You don't have to be right-brained to have an appreciation for music. Everybody loves it. Uh, the philosopher Immanuel uh, Kant said, music is the quickening art. That word quickening uh, means to come back to life. It means to animate. It means to move. And I think he's onto something. Um, it's what God has done. It's something that God has created to actually help us. Um, this isn't by accident. You know, music is not just some social creation that early humans crafted. And, and aren't we clever? And aren't we, uh, aren't we interesting? No, this is actually a part of God's creation and His economy. Um, think about it this way. You know, imagine Prince William or Prince Harry in the UK. Imagine how they, how they feel or what happens in their mind or their soul uh, when Elton John's um, Candle and Wind comes on. Because that was a song that Elton John wrote about their mother, 
who died in that car accident a long time ago. I would imagine, you know, on one hand, um, they would smile because it's a great song written about their mom, but on the other hand, it makes them sorrowful because it reminds them of, of a great loss. It's a good song, but it's a sad song. Uh, most of us haven't seen Singing in the Rain, that old Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds movie, but almost all of us can at least recite a line or two from it, can't we? That's one of those songs of like cheerfulness and happiness. Even though it's raining, even though the outside circumstances are, are dark and grim and drab, there's still goodness. There's still light. We can sing in the rain. That's why people have breakup songs, right? Because somewhere, someone wrote a, a lyric or, or caught a tune that really captured what you were feeling on the inside, and that became your breakup song. Or maybe you have a song that is like your couple song, right? Music has that, has that power. It gives us a, a way of, of orchestrating and putting a melody to our, our feelings or what's going on inside of us. It helps us celebrate, but at the same time it helps us grieve and, and lament. Maybe you didn't know this, um, but God in His economy and, and in His kindness has created a way for us to worship Him in our sadness and in our sorrow and in our grief. And it's called a lament. And what's great about this is that the, the laments in the Psalms, there are, there's dozens of them. You know, there's this Psalm 42. There's another one, Psalm 88. There's several uh, of them. And what's great about this is, is that when we lament before God, when we engage in this historic practice of, of taking our sorrow to the face of God, He doesn't see it as complaining. Instead, it's actually a form of worship unto God when we take those sorrows uh, to Him. It's not complaining. It's worship. But here's what the enemy tells us. It's like God doesn't want to hear that. Don't burden God with your sorrows. Don't burden God with your sadness. Man up. Don't let your emotions control you. Don't be fragile. If you take your lament and your sorrows before God, that's complaining. And what you're really doing is you're really doubting God. You can't say to God like the psalmist, where are you, O God? Because if you do that, then you're really doubting Him. You can't do that to God. Well, if that were the case, Psalm 42 wouldn't be in the Bible but it is. There's a way to worship God in and with our sadness. We never trouble God by taking to Him our sorrows, our worries, our grief. We trouble God by ignoring Him, by not taking those to Him. That door has been opened, that pathway has been given to us to take that grief to Him. So, two points this morning, two things I want to focus on, uh, very simple. I want to focus on the writer's condition, his condition, and then I want to focus on his actions, his conditions and his actions. So two-pointer, so we'll get out a little early. Uh, his condition, maybe you grew up reading that book, I remember it vividly uh, as a child, Alex and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, everybody remember that one? It's a classic. It's right up there with like where the wild things are, okay? Um, Psalm 42 is like the biblical version of that story. 
Um, what this psalmist is experiencing is, is not a, a micro-sorrow. It's not a micro-offense. Um, it's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season. Um, and let's, let's look into that a little further. First, inwardly, what's, what's going on on the inside of the psalmist? There's almost too many to actually talk about this morning, so I'm just going to highlight uh, a few. What's going on on his insides? What's going on in his, in his emotions, his soul? Uh, verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Yes, that's hyperbole. Yes, that's poetic language. But maybe you've experienced a sorrow or a grief like that where you just feel like your emotions have overtaken you and you can't stop crying. So much so that your tears are rolling down your cheeks and into the corners of your mouth and it's as if that is what you are consuming day and night. Instead of food, because of loss of appetite, you are consuming your very tears. It feels like you just cannot stop from crying. You cannot stop from weeping. What he's illustrating for us is, is a time in, in all of our lives where we experience the brokenness of this world, the fallenness of this world, in such a way that it outweighs the goodness and the gospel. So think of it like a scale. There are times in our life where we experience a grief and a sorrow to such a degree that it outweighs our understanding of the good news, our reality of the good news, and it feels like we're eating our tears for breakfast and lunch and dinner. That happens. He goes on, verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Sometimes we experience a grief and a sorrow so acute and so painful, it literally feels like you're drowning. Like you cannot catch your emotional breath. Counselors have a term for this. They, they actually call it flooding. You're experiencing anger, sorrow, grief, guilt, shame, so many emotions all at one time that you cannot process them at once and you feel like you're drowning. That's where the psalmist is. He's gotten to the point in verse 9 where he asks the question that all of us have wanted to ask to God, have you forgotten me? In other words, my, my, my current environment and my situation is so painful and it's so sorrowful. My experience in the brokenness has outweighed the good news of the gospel. It feels like you've forgotten me. Did you know that you can say that to God? Did you know that He is big enough, secure enough for you to say, it feels like you've forgotten me. It feels like I'm alone. It feels like I don't have help. God can take that. He's a big God. We can say that to Him. That's what He's feeling on the inside. But where did all of this come from? This didn't just come from a vacuum. Um, here's, here's what's going on on the outside. If that's the inside, here's, here's what's happen, happening externally. What's, what's causing this crisis? Um, some of the psalms are written by David. Some of the, uh, of the psalms, we don't know who the author is, but Psalm 42 is written by the sons of Korah. And here's what we know about them. If Israel had a boy band early on in Israel's history, that would be the sons of Korah. They were the choristers 
uh, for the nation of Israel. They were, they were a part of the tribe of Levi, and it was their job to put to, um, to writing and to put to tune these songs and these hymns that David wrote or that they wrote. So they, they, they penned and they orchestrated this song. We don't have the original tune for it, um, but it was a song and it was meant to be sung uh, in front of the, the body, in front of the people of God. What we know is that when they wrote this psalm, um, that the sons of Korah and Israel were in exile. We don't know who, and we don't know exactly when, but, but look at, at the second part of verse 4. This is the, the writer saying, he, he's kind of recollecting and remembering. He says, as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Uh, he's remembering something, and he's remembering a place where he is currently not. Um, they're in exile. And what's more is, is that the people of God have a, t- have a tangible adversary. Their adversary is not emotional. They're not talking about the evil one, um, but they're actually talking about a, a, a tangible adversary on earth, an enemy. Uh, look at verse 9, the second part of it. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And verse 10, the second part of it. While they, their enemies, say to me all day long, where is your God? So not only do they have an enemy, not only are they in exile, not only are they captive to this enemy, but they're being taunted. It's as if their enemy is saying, you know, if you did have a God, he's not powerful enough to respond to you. Or he doesn't care enough to respond to you. They're not home. They're not in Israel. They're not near the temple where they should be and where God's presence and His power are, are most clearly seen and experienced. They're in exile. And it brings them great grief. And by the way, as a, as a side note, they're, they're in exile um, because of their rebellion. Um, they're in exile because of their idolatry. So they brought this upon themselves. They were warned by God. They didn't listen. And now they're oppressed. And it's here and these environments where we experience great sorrow and great grief, that the lies, the lies we're at about a volume three, but it's, it, but it's here when the, when the lies get dialed up to a, to a nine. And you get to see the psalmist kind of experience of that in this passage. Verse three, the second part, where's your God? What's the lie there? The lie is, is that your God has abandoned you. Your God doesn't care. And the second part of verse 9, or the first part of verse 9, excuse me, he actually gets to the point to where he says to God, why have you forgotten me? That's what the enemy wants you to believe. That's the lie. Now again, these aren't micro-offenses. These aren't micro-sorrows. They've been displaced. They're not home. They're not where they should be. They're under the oppression of, of an enemy. And so we ask, like the psalmist, how do you neutralize a pain like this? How do you take a pain and a sorrow this acute and this strong and not just neutralize it, but bring you to a place of joy? 
And again, I'm so thankful that we have Psalm 42 in the Bible because it actually gives us language. It gives us the path to say, here's what you do. Here's what you can do uh, with God. So what does the psalmist do? What are his actions? He does two things. He remembers and he does. Remembers and does. First, remembering. Um, Maybe you've seen this in the news recently, but uh, early rain, that's that church in China um, that's being, you know, oppressed and uh, persecuted. Um, There's loads of articles out there uh, about uh, what's happening, but something that caught my eye early on was when, when their pastor and some of their church leaders were being interrogated. And by interrogated, I mean heavily interrogated. And something that they would do uh, when they were being asked questions by um, the Chinese government is they would recite the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question is, what is your only joy in this life? That I belong body and soul to our Lord Jesus Christ. And they weren't trying to be cute. They weren't trying to be clever. They weren't trying to displace the conversation. Um, but what were they doing? They were remembering in a time of great oppression, in a time of great grief and great sorrow, they were trying to remember what, is, what really is our only hope in this life. What brings us joy? What brings us gladness? That I belong body and soul to my Lord Jesus Christ. That I'm going to go where He goes. And if He suffers, I suffer. But if He's glorified, I too will be glorified. He, they remembered. The psalmist does that exact same thing. In verse 4, what does he remember? He remembers how he would go out with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. That's what the sons of Korah would do. They're the music leaders. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Does he miss the party? Does he miss the excitement? Is he an extrovert? Does he love just being around people? No. What do all of these things represent? They represent the temple. It represents the presence of God. He remembers the Lord. Notice how in this psalm it transitions a lot like Psalm 84 did last week from the temple to the Lord Himself. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Did you notice kind of like the irony of that statement? I say to my God, my rock, my rock, that is who you are, steady, sure, solid. I can rest on you. I can trust in you. I say to my rock, why have you forgotten me? You can say both of those to God. I trust you, but here's what life feels like. I remember you. Verse 11, in the second part, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. He remembers that this God is active. He's not asleep. This God is living. Verse 2, my soul first thirsts for God, the living God. He's calling out to a God who he knows is not asleep, who has not become so fed up with Israel that he said, I'm just done with you. You go over there, I'm going over here, and never the two shall interact again. No, his God is living. His God is active. His God is personal. His God is God of salvation. He remembers the Lord. But sometimes just remembering is not enough to really outweigh our troubles. There's also some doing. Notice the actions that the psalmist takes. 
there's a rebuke. Did you catch it in verse 5? He doesn't rebuke his enemy. He doesn't rebuke the Lord. Who does he rebuke? He rebukes himself. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? As if to talk to himself objectively. He says, self. Self, why are you so downcast? And why are you in turmoil within me? As if to say, at some point in our grief and our sorrow, we have to stop listening to ourselves. Then there's hoping. There's rebuking and then hoping. When he stops listening to himself, he starts preaching the gospel to himself. Notice where he places his hope. We just talked about this. In the living God, the God who is active, in in the rock, a God who is sure and who is steady. But notice the tone of optimism in verse 5. Right there at the end. For I shall again praise him. It's not things are done, things are toast, things are over, let's just get used to the way things are. No, no, no. Our God is the God of salvation. Though things are, are difficult and though th- things are incredibly sorrowful and mournful at this time, we will praise Him again. This won't be the last of it. Why? Because His God is His rock. And His God is alive. And He does this through praying. Verse 8. That last stanza. A prayer to the God of my life. There's asking. Again, that's what turns a, a true lament from complaining into a lament and a love song to God. It's, it, to complain is to say, life is horrible. God has forgotten me. To say that to our friends, to say that to the ceiling, to say that out loud because of frustration. It's another thing entirely to go to God and say, it feels like you've forgotten me. And to remember and to hope and to pray and to ask and say, would you change our situation? Would you change where I am? There's asking, there's prayer. And lastly, there's, there's singing. You can sing your sorrow to God. Again, as we study the Psalms, we're always asking ourselves this question, and our semi- my seminary professor got this in my head. What effect would this song have on people singing it regularly? You know, this week we're turning to Psalm 42 and we're going to sing that song of lament. They probably knew stanzas of the song by heart. What effect would this have on us if we sang it weekly? Or on Israel if they sang it weekly? You would get into the habit of, of singing your sorrow to God, lamenting before Him, having the opportunity to share that grief and that sorrow with Him. Did you know that you can do that? And that is a form of worship. You can. Let me close with three things uh, this morning. Uh, and in doing so, let's, let's consider Jesus. Uh, first, first is this. Um, Jesus knows very, very well your sorrows and your sufferings. Um, he, too, was exposed to the sufferings of this world. You know, for 33 years, he took on flesh. Uh, he worked. He had job deadlines. Uh, and he showed up in this world under Roman oppression. He knows what 
oppression looks like. He knows what it feels like to be ridiculed. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. Uh, He knows it. Isaiah prophesied long before Jesus got on the scene that Jesus would be a man of sorrows. That's one of the titles for Jesus was the man of sorrows. And here's what that means. Maybe you've done this before. Maybe you've told someone about a difficulty in your life or, or a really, really difficult season. And, you know, with like wide eyes and with surprise, they were kind of like, oh, they're there. Um, wow, that sounds awful. Hey, you want to go over, you know, over here? And, and they displace the conversation and they move on. Um, and you couldn't put words to it just yet, but, but you've, you felt a little hurt by it, a little put off. Um, What's great about Jesus is that when you pray and when you share your sorrows, and when you truly lament before Him, I mean, imagine yourself sitting across the table from Jesus. He's across the table looking at you in your eyes and nodding His head going, I know. I know. He knows because he's been there. He knows how that feels. He's not going to displace the conversation. Again, he's reminding us that it's actually a form of worship to do that with him. And he can say, I know how that feels. That sting of betrayal, that sting of hurt, that fear, that doubt, that sorrow, I know how that feels. And so the invitation to us this morning is to actually practice that. Again, the fact that this is in the hymn book means that this was a regular occurrence, a regular practice of the church was to sing or to speak your sorrows to Christ. And I invite you to try it, do it. Imagine him sitting across the room from you or the table from you and just tell him what bothers you. Tell him what makes you sad. And watch what happens. Second, not only does he know our sorrow, but he has experienced a much deeper and a more terrible sorrow than the church will ever know. Not only does he understand and completely sympathize and empathize with life on this earth, but he too experienced a sorrow and a mourning that the church will never know. Not only did Isaiah call him a man of sorrows, but what Isaiah would go on to say later in Isaiah 53, verse 4, is that he took upon himself uh, the wrath and the judgment and the discipline, the correction that we deserved on Calvary so that the church would never have to experience that sorrow that pain. There's a lot of similarities between what the psalmist is saying here, Lord, why have you forgotten me? With Jesus' words on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's almost the exact same thing except for one difference. Jesus was forsaken by God. That that beautiful fellowship he had with, with with the Father and with the Holy Spirit was broken at Calvary. And what he took upon himself was the separation, was being forsaken by the Father, a sorrow 
and, and a pain that He never wanted us to experience. Why? So that when life is hard for us and when we're going through pain and our own difficulties, though it feels like He's forgotten us, what we know is that we will never be forsaken like Jesus was. He experienced a sorrow and a grief so that we, the church, would never have to experience it. He was forsaken, so we would never be. So after you've shared your grief uh, with Jesus, after you've sung your sorrows to Him, remind yourself of this. Preach the gospel to yourself. Stop listening to yourself. Say to yourself, Jesus was forsaken so that I would never be. And even though it feels like God has forgotten me right now in this season, in this life, I know because He is my rock, He is my salvation, He is my life, that I will never be forsaken because of Christ. Lastly, I think what Jesus gives us here in Psalm 42, what He gives especially to the sorrowful church, is an immeasurable hope. In His own words, Jesus told this, this parable in John 16. He says, this life and the life to come is a lot like a woman in labor. And if you're a mother and if you've, if you've had a child, you can, you know, put your hearty amen at the end of this one. Yes, there's a season of pain and a season of suffering. But what Jesus says in this parable is that pain is, is very, very soon and immediately forgotten when you're looking into the face of that newborn, when you're holding that child. That pain is replaced with joy. He said, this life, Jesus says, this life is a lot like childbirth. It's painful. But guess what? This life is the temporary one. This one's the vapor. This one's going away. The joy that is to come and the life that He is creating, this new heaven and this new earth, this new city that He is building and constructing, it is so joyful that no mind can conceive at how good it is. We'll forget our pain. We'll forget our suffering. Let me put it this way. One writer said this. He said, think of it this way. For nearly 3,000 years, the writer of this psalm, Psalm 42, has been singing an entirely different song. Yeah, he sang this once. He sang this in the company of God. He sang this multiple times. But now, because he's been glorified and he's been brought into the presence of God, he's singing an entirely different song. He will never sing a lament again. And his eternity has just begun. That's our immeasurable hope in the church, is it not? It's, it's not to sing songs to, to distract us and go, let's just kind of sweep our pain under the rug. Let's forget it. No, we acknowledge it. We hold it out there in front of us and we go, look, this is real. This is hard. This is difficult. There is pain in this life, and we're not going to minimize that one bit, but we also know this. We have an immeasurable, eternal inheritance that is coming our way. And we know this because Christ was glorified. He suffered and then He was glorified. And He says where He is going, we get to go with Him. And that's our spot on the horizon as we as pilgrims and travelers, we go, okay, if I can look at that spot, then this pain doesn't diminish, this pain doesn't go away, it's just outweighed by that glory. It's outweighed by that goodness. So we, maybe like Gene Kelly, can say, um, I'm singing in the rain, right? Acknowledging that pain, that darkness, 
but good is coming, and good is coming out of it. Uh, let's pray together. Great Father, would you, uh, would you help us? Would you sit across from us? Would you nod your head? Would you affirm that life is hard and that there, there's some pain in this life that we've brought on ourselves, and there's some pain in this life that others have brought on us and it's just hard? Now, would you take that sorrow and that comfort and would you outweigh it with the greatness and the goodness of your good news? Make us true believers. Make us hopeful. Would you outweigh our sorrow? Would you give us joy? Would you be the God of our salvation? Would you be our rock? Would you turn our laments and our sorrows into songs of praise and songs of thanksgiving? We trust you, we remember you, and we hope in you, we pray to you, and we sing to you. You who are our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.